Welcome to the Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode number 133. Chat review number two with Rachel Thomas on what fractals can teach us about our God. And maybe that's a good good segue to talk about how I feel the fractal, fractal nature of life. One key thing about fractals, you were talking about the idea of being space-filling. I can take a line and change one thing about it. Instead of, I have, you know, a, a starting point and an ending point, I can connect them with a straight line, uh, and, which means basically I do nothing. I just go on a path to get from one point to the other. So doing nothing, repeating that pattern, quote unquote, is doing nothing infinitely many times. I still end up with a line. I, if I started with a blank piece of paper with a line on it, I'd have a blank piece of paper with a line on it when I was all done. Let's say I changed one thing by putting a little bump in that line. And now that would be my first generation. I had a straight line and now I choose to put a little triangular bump right in the middle. Okay. And now I say, let's repeat that. Everywhere I see a straight line, I'm going to put a little bump in it. So then I've got a little bumpy looking line with a little, a bigger bump in it. And I do that again and again and again. This is another way to generate fractals. And the one that I've just described, if you, if you cut it perfectly in a third, if you make that triangular bump in the middle represent a third of the line of the space that you were originally doing. That's one called the, the coach snowflake or the, the snowflake curve. And it gets fuzzy looking. If I do that seven or eight times, I've got a very fuzzy line. And if I added up the number of paper molecules that were covered with ink, in the end of my process, I would have a much larger number at the end than I would have started with if I just drew a line from the left to the right, from the beginning to the end without any kind of bumps on it. That, that didn't fill the space. I would still be looking at a piece of paper with one design on it that obviously connected two points. Uh, but it turns out that if I make that inside pattern a little bit crazier, so if I started, if my original thing was to have a little bump in the middle, maybe I make that bump a square instead of a triangle, or maybe I'd make two bumps instead of one bump. If I repeat that pattern again and again and again, the weirder that stuff is, the more space I end up filling. I see this as a commentary on life. I'm born, I have a starting point. If I'm ruled by this world, I've got an ending point that it involves me having the most status and material possessions, whatever things the world tells me are valuable, those are the things I'm going to amass. And if that is my goal and I am singularly minded and I am successful in all I do, I make a straight line from where I started to where I ended and I have touched virtually nothing on that page. In my sphere of influence, I have accomplished my goal but done nothing else. If I put a little bump in there and I repeat that, you know, and, and we notice this, if you look back over your life, you might notice that the things that you do repeat themselves consciously or not, right? Patterns of your behavior, patterns of your thought on small scale, on the big scale. This, this fractal idea of self-similarity isn't just for pictures and it's not just for objects in nature or art. It is in actions that we do, music that we hear, words that we speak. Yeah. Anyway, if we have that little bump in there, you know, the, the crazier our bumps are, the more space we fill. If we, I believe that if we lead lives that are yielded to God's call on our lives. Not only do we not have any idea where that ending point is going to be. So now that thing is like fluctuating wildly, right? Because right. what God That's values is not right what, now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, what God values is not what we value and or not what we inherently value as humans on this world, on this world, on this earth. Uh, so I don't even know where the ending point is even going to be. So I don't even know what I'm aiming for, but I'm just yielding to, and, and God even tells us, my word is your life's plan. My word is a lamp unto your feet. Shows you where your next step is, but not the five-year plan, right? So we just take these steps kind of blindly in the dark if we're really following 
Jesus and yielded to him, those bumps and those blips are going to be pretty big. And if we're totally yielded, we're going to fill our whole page. How many people can we touch? How much change can we make in this world for Jesus if we can let God govern the fractal nature of our trajectory? That's how I see fractals and Jesus intersecting. You knew about fractals before you became a Christian because you were studying. Yes. Okay. So how did that, did that play any role in, in, because when we talked with you, when we were doing the shoot and stuff, one of the things you talked about almost immediately was fractals. And it seemed to be <laughs> yeah. that one, that was one of the things that just sucked your attention, like, boom, I'm there. And so what is it about fractals that, and I, I know you've already laid out a lot, but what was it that initially captured you so deeply about fractals in relation to what the mind of God? I think it's just the, what you've already said, or I, I don't want to double up, but no, no, I, I think it really is the complexity versus complication, right? Uh, and and I can attribute a lot to Mandelbrot. I, I really hope we get to see Benoit Mandelbrot in glory. I've got so many questions for that guy. But I remember being in college, I was reading some of Mandelbrot's writing about economics. He, it was a paper he had written about the stock market crash of 1929. Uh, and I just, I, I put this guy on a pedestal right before I knew Jesus, before I was a Christian at all, Mandelbrot was it for me. He was so brilliant. He really was. And I would listen to his lectures whenever I could. I could find recordings of them. I love to hear his voice. I love to hear him talk. He was just the most brilliant person I had ever heard. Uh, and I'm reading this paper that he wrote about the stock market crash of 1929. And he talks about the flood from Genesis 6. And I was like, <laughs> what? Like, this is the most brilliant person I've ever heard of. And he's referencing Genesis. So that was really one of my first clues that you could be smart and actually a person of faith at the same time. But yeah, so so that... Was he definitely a, a person of faith? Well, he was a Jew. He was okay. Jewish. I don't know. I can't find a whole lot of commentary on how strong he was yeah, in practicing the his faith. The world would not be interested in knowing that. No. Yes. no, they would not. And honestly, a lot of the things that he did, I mean, he talked about the placement of the stars in the universe in reference to, again, calling on scripture, talking about how God placed the stars in the universe. And he's finding fractal patterns in patterns of where the stars are in the night sky from a very earthly perspective, you know, from our vantage point, that's a significant thing to how the fractal layout of the stars is in the universe, which is all very interesting. But you find that stuff very, very deeply buried in his work because, the, again, the world doesn't really value that overlap per se. So anyway, uh, your question was, how did fractals play into uh, yeah, the understanding did, Jesus? Did fractals yeah. help suck you in to the point where you said, wow, God really is real. And this Jesus person is exactly who he claimed to be. A lot of it was having a scientist that I revered, obviously crediting the Bible with factual information was one of the things that got me back to the Bible to think about like, hmm, maybe I've misjudged. Maybe I saw these numbers that I thought were wrong and really just didn't understand what they were trying to say. But the idea that another sticking point for me in believing the Bible as it's written is the idea of God being great and powerful and omniscient and everything, but then saying things like, you have to be like a child, you know, or let the children come to me. And if any, if you don't have faith like a child, then you don't really understand. I'm like, well, children don't know anything, you know, <laughs> they're, 
I, I went, I went at that point in my life, I was looking for a God figure who was saying the most knowledgeable people and the ones who know all of the most stuff are the ones that are going to be <laughs> up in my kingdom. Uh, Cause that's what I had. Like I had academic capital is, you yeah. know, how I would have described the value that I was giving to, to my person. But fractals give us a vocabulary and a context in which simplicity and elegance create things that are, are transcendently complex. Mm-hmm. And that, that connection could only be divine. Like that, that's one of the Jesus is who he says he is, because you can only have that kind of simplicity and complexity at the same time mm-hmm. in, in a divine way. Yeah. 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 And I, I love that concept because it's true in so many ways about the things that happen in the Bible. There's this, this paradoxical sense in which God is at both extremes. He is infinite complexity while being absolute simplicity. And that, mm-hmm. that unity of the man in, uh, of man and God in the incarnation I deliberately chose that to be the very first thing I start every episode of The Christian Atheist with, because the incarnation seems to me to be the very seal of everything God does. He pours himself out from this condition of complete simplicity. And therefore, when you pour yourself out from that condition and you create infinite complexity, that infinite complexity had to be contained within the, the infinite simplicity. And so it's that constant paradox that we see over and over again. And when I came back after my years, this is, this is I kind of related to what you were saying right there, because when I left Christianity after Bible college, what I was looking for was exactly like you said, that person who had the knowledge. And the one, I guess the most important lesson I learned in 25 years as an atheist is there is no such person. other than God. That's it. If you're looking for that, there's only one place you'll find it. Because human beings, we have this little tiny slice, right? This little tiny slice of the Mandelbrot set that we are looking at, and we're not seeing the broad, <laughs> massive structure that lies behind it, beyond it, the infinitely complex thing. And we scientists, even the smartest of the scientists and mathematicians today, they claims to know so much more than it's possible that they can know. Okay, let me let me ask this as a question. Do the Mandelbrot sets get increasingly complex when you move from the midpoint between the second and third dimension? Is the center like the most complex or does it get more complex when you move towards the extremes like, you know, 1.1, 1.9? Sure. Without having any paperwork to back this up, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it's probably most complex near the center of the interval. Okay. That close. If you have, have something with a Hausdorff dimension of like two point nine eight, it's going to seem very three dimensional. Okay, and, and, and can you yeah. can you give us a primer on Hausdorff versus Euclidean? Yes. Sure. Yeah. So the Euclidean dimension will only be whole numbers. A Euclidean dimension would be like how many axes essentially you would need to define the space. So if I have a Euclidean three manifold or Euclidean three, three dimensional object, uh, that basically means if I have a point 
any location, any single location in that spot, and I've identified an origin or a center point somewhere else, I would need three pieces of information to specifically define where my new point is based on the old one. So it's the three dimensions, like a, a length, a width, and a height, essentially, uh, or in a two-dimensional, on a map. You know, if you have the latitude and longitude, you know where you are. So it's a two-dimensional right. thing. So that's a Euclidean sort of, of definition. The Hausdorff so, dimension, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Now you start start spurring other questions for me. So sure. we talk about the space-time continuum, and that's four dimensions, right? Sure. Yep. And, and so a physical you, location, a three-point physical dimension, physical location plus a time. In, plus in a time, temporal yeah. dimension. Okay. Mm -hmm. And do 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 mathematicians or physicists, for that matter, really consider it a fourth dimension? I mean, are the dimensions in the same way, or is there a difference between them? It, it depends on what context you're asking. If you're in the context of string theory, I would say, yes, you're going to talk about time as being a fourth physical dimension, like not necessarily physical dimension, but having that dimension having the same magnitude and qualities as the, the location identifier dimensions, which, which is why that's okay, which is why in string theory, you can talk about like five, six, seven dimensions, all being like different pathways, different choices that sprout from a given I'm going to stop talking because someone listening to this will know more about string theory than me. And I don't want to say the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah, I've looked at all of it too, but I'm not knowledgeable enough to understand. I always like to pick where I can the minds of those who are smarter than I am on things. Yeah. To, to, because I know I'm an ignoramus about most uh -huh. things. So it's fun to, to learn what I can. So you were talking about the distinction between Hausdorff and what, Euclidean, right? Yeah. Um, dimensions? Yeah, and the, and the Hausdorff dimension is just basically like a way to measure the dimension of something. Hausdorff dimensioning, does that allow for fractional dimensions or are yes. they integers? Okay. Yes. No, it oh. allows for fractional dimensions in the same way that a power could be fractional. So if I would end up with a Hausdorff dimension of one half, that would be like considering the square root as being a power, which okay. it is. You know, it really is. It's just a different way, uh, different way to look at them. So does that relate um, to the paradox of measuring like coastline? Yes, of exactly. Uh, yep. The results you get will be dependent upon the scale with which you measure. Yes. Yes. So let's say, right, by how much they're different is how you get the dimension. Let's take a square. If I make a square twice as big, okay, the fundamental measure of a square is going to be its area. If I make a square quote unquote, twice as big, it will actually have four times the area. Right. Two to the two is four to the two, the power there. That's the Hausdorff dimension. Or if I had a, a square that had an area of three, or if I make a square three times bigger, it's going to have nine times the area. Three squared is nine, Hausdorff dimension two. Right. Okay. So if I have a fractal like the coach snowflake, and I make it, or the, the Sierpinski gas, if I have a, a fractal like the Sierpinski gas, that triangle with all the triangles taken out of it, and I make it, quote unquote, twice as big, the area or whatever I'm measuring about it will not be four times as much. It won't be twice as much. It'll be greater than one. It'll be greater than two to the one, but it won't be all the way up to two to the two. So that power, two to the what, is kind of what I'm asking. That's why the Hausdorff dimension is defined as a logarithm. Two to the what, that what is the Hausdorff dimension of that object. I see. Okay. And Is that, that doesn't any better? Okay. Yeah, that, that helps actually. Yep. That made sense in my head. I'm glad it finally <laughs> came out in a way that was intelligible to others. <laughs> and I'm thinking about also the fractional dimensions. Like when you are approaching the third dimension and filling space 
more fully. I mean, it's almost like you can see it like uprising and, and coming into a third dimension. Is there some sort of way of visualizing this transformation from two-dimensional to three-dimensional mathematically? I mean, is it are there mathematical progressions that will take you from a two-dimensional structure to a three-dimensional structure mathematically, formulaically? I, I, just something that's, that occurred to me. Yeah, that's a great question, and I'm not. I don't. I'm not sure that there are. You could probably look up. I'm sure someone made has someone has made some kind of a visualization. I'm sure that you could look up on YouTube a uh, a visual showing starting with like a, a two dimensional a, a fractal that would be occupying three dimensional space, but it itself only having two dimensions, kind of expanding or growing into something that was a solid three dimensional thing. But I'm not sure if there's a a mathematical way to kind of describe that. Although I've hmm. I feel like there should be, Roger Penrose did a really cool thing in the, I'm going to say 1990s, maybe 1980s. Uh, Roger Penrose was a 20th century British mathematician uh, who talked a lot about hyperspace, right? And he was also very closely related with M.C. Escher and Escher's artistic uh, explorations into into mind-bending kinds of optical illusions, right? And uh, Penrose made a lot of headway into visualizing what he would call hyperspace or that fourth physical dimension. There's a great video that I saw one time, and I believe that it was, if Penrose didn't make it, it was his ideas that somebody put into a visual that showed like taking your three-dimensional word and kind of expanding it until it popped into being four-dimensional. <laughs> that <laughs> might have been in, yeah, that, that might have been in the movie. There was a film made in the 90s called Not Not, N-O-T, K-N-O-T. It was probably in that film, to be honest. Right. <laughs> Anything that you would like to say to our listeners about how mathematics, fractals, teaches you about the mind of God. What is it that for you is so powerful, you know, in the Bible, whatever, any of those things that make you feel closer to God because you're getting a glimpse of his mind through this study? Oh, that is a great question. I love building fractals just for funsies. In my geometry classes, we do a lot of building fractals. There's a lot of stuff you can just do a small Google search online to say like, how can I make my own fractal? And you'll find some applet that someone has made where you click around on the numbers, pull and drag lines around and you can build fractals. And it's super fun. And it is incredibly powerful because if you use the tool the right way, like I was describing before, you start with a straight line and you just put a little bump in it and it changes the whole picture. Just ever so subtly, but this idea that like when when we take one step, the trajectory, we're not just changing what happens in that step, we're changing in the the entire trajectory of where we're going. Mm-hmm. You know, people like to make this analogy that sensitive it, dependence on initial conditions. Very much. Yeah. yeah. Sensitive dependence on initial conditions, where you you've heard it a million times on any time travel television show or movie that if you travel back in time, be careful not to touch anything because any one little thing you do could drastically affect the future. But we fail to apply that to our day-to-day lives where we think, oh, that means the small actions I do right now in this time and place have a profound impact on the future. Right. And and even more so, if I try and imagine what God can do with his infinite power, his just little, you know, the the tiniest little changes that he makes and the way he set everything into motion in creation, the immense, broad impact of his actions. No wonder he could just speak and create everything and how powerful we are, not just by virtue of 
this idea of the sensitive dependence and and our the fractal behavior of our lives and small changes we have uh, right now can have powerful and immense changes on the trajectory of our own lives and those around us. Like that's powerful enough. But then throw the Holy Spirit on there. You know, there there's no stopping us. If we could only harness the power that we have to affect change for God's glory in this earth, what a different place this would be. And it's a it's a struggle that we have daily, but may we all be so empowered each day. May we all live each day. Those of us who know Jesus, may we live to be instruments of his ways in all we say and do so that others can see the light. Uh, yeah, I should stop yeah. talking. If only we could really, really believe. I mean, Jesus said, yeah. faith, faith of the mustard seed. I tend to think he was being incredibly literal here. I think we seldom give full voice to what God said in his word. Mm-hmm. I think we often, one of the things we're finding out is the whole notion of one flesh, how shallow our view of that has been for so long. And now science is finding out that, that, that in fact, married couples really do start sharing one body, one immune system, <laughs> all of those things. And so when Jesus said, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be thrown into the ocean, and it would happen. So it's mm-hmm. like our faith doesn't match up to our God. And I nope. think that's what eternity is about, trying mm-hmm. to get closer and closer on that. And I think about for myself, I spent 25 years as an atheist. I come back, we start the Christian Atheist podcast, and I spend the first three, four years talking about my atheism and the problem that it was. And I realized what I need to do is to move forward, move away from that, because that's my job from now on, to move away from the continuum that is atheism towards God, become more and more like him, understand him better. And it gives me some impetus to study mathematics because I'm so incredibly weak with it that to learn anything I can by any means possible about the mind of God, that's what my life's supposed to be all about. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, you have been such a rich resource for us. And our our listeners have absolutely loved our, our first set of of, and I imagine this one's going to be popular too. So thank you so much for doing this with us and please Absolutely. stay in touch with us. Absolutely. It's been a joy to be on your your program and I may, may we all work together. Yes. I feel like this is a great partnership in our own corners and here in communities where we can be communicating to each other and broadly uh, to others. May we all seek to shine the light where we are. We're supposed to shine like stars, right? And Mandelbrot was the one who said the stars, well, God said the stars are placed. But Mandelbrot proved that they were placed in a a fractal pattern. So let's shine in our fractal place where we are to bring maximum light into the dark night sky. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.